In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm answering questions about how airlines determine flying times and why they sometimes pad their schedules. Afterwards, we're going to look at the past and the future of supersonic passenger flight. Welcome to episode 19 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel. As usual, we're going to start off by answering some questions about air travel. Then for the main segment, I'm going to explore the history of supersonic passenger transport, talk about why travelers no longer have the option of flying faster than the speed of sound, and what prospects are on the horizon for a future return to supersonic air travel. How do airlines determine flying times for their schedules? Now of course, the basics in determining how long a flight will take involves doing some math with the plane speed and the distance. However, things are a little bit more complicated than that as there are other factors that airlines consider. You may have seen that the same airline operating the same route can have different flying times for different flights throughout the day. Airlines will build their schedules based on historical data and can factor in things like air traffic and airport congestion patterns throughout the day. Airlines often also engage in what's known as schedule padding, which is when they add extra time to the flying time. This allows more flights to arrive on time, even if they encounter delays. For example, if a flight is flying out of a large airport with long takeoff lines early in the morning, airlines would likely add extra flying time to those flights to account for the additional time that the plane is probably going to spend on the ground. Now speaking of flying times, the shortest scheduled commercial flight in the world has a scheduled flying time of only 2 minutes. I talked about it in the last episode, episode 18, so go check that out if you haven't done so already. So why do airlines pad their schedules? Well, delays are expensive for airlines, especially when they have a cascading effect. Schedule padding improves on-time performance as flights that encounter unexpected delays will have more buffer room and leeway and are therefore more likely to still arrive on time. For flights that don't encounter any issues, schedule padding means that they will arrive early. Various parties like industry organizations, government agencies, and the media also track airline on-time performance, which means that airlines want to ensure that as many flights arrive on-time as possible. Better on-time performance can also reduce airlines' liability in terms of delayed flight compensation since obligations to compensate for passenger delays are generally based on arrival time. The flip side is that excessive padding means that airplanes would spend unnecessary time sitting on the ground, so it's all a balancing act for airlines that requires some analysis and calculations. While some people may consider schedule padding a bit of a dishonest practice, it can also be seen as managing or setting realistic expectations for both passengers and the airline, leading to smoother operations and better staff and passenger satisfaction. If you enjoy listening to Flying Smarter and have been able to learn a thing or two about air travel from the podcast, please help me out by leaving a 5-star review on your podcast app. Not only does it help prospective listeners hit that play button, but it also helps convince guests to come share their knowledge and their insights with you and me. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to do so, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave a positive review for the podcast. Did you know that German flag carrier Lufthansa has special celebrations for Oktoberfest? Each year, Lufthansa celebrates the annual festival with special flights where cabin crews swap their uniforms for traditional Bavarian clothing. 
Lounges in Munich also feature Bavarian specialties, and some Lufthansa staff at Munich Airport will also wear the Oktoberfest outfits. Business class and first class passengers flying out of Munich Airport also get to enjoy Bavarian dishes on board, and in some years, the airline has even brought special beer kegs on board as well. The airline took a hiatus from holding its special Oktoberfest celebrations in 2020 and 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but the festivities are back on in 2022. Air travel has changed how humans live by connecting the world. Compared to other modes of transport, planes can get people around the world pretty quickly. Airliners today generally have a cruise speed in the area of 900 km per hour or 560 miles per hour. Now in cruising, airlines use Mach numbers to measure their speed. A Mach number of 1 is equal to the speed of sound. Jet airliners today generally cruise under the speed of sound at somewhere between Mach 0.76 and Mach 0.85. However, we once had a supersonic airliner that could cruise well above the speed of sound, crossing the Atlantic in under three and a half hours. In this main segment, I'm going to talk about how we were once able to jet around in a supersonic airplane, why we no longer have that option, and what the future holds for supersonic flight. Now, I want to clear one thing up first. There are lots of supersonic military aircraft out there. Lots of countries have developed and operate supersonic military planes, and supersonic fighters and attack aircraft in particular. However, this is an air travel podcast, and so this main segment is going to look at supersonic commercial aircraft. In the world of supersonic passenger travel, there's one name that immediately comes to mind. Concorde. After the United States successfully broke the speed of sound in a research rocket plane in 1947, a race developed around the world to build a supersonic passenger aircraft. The two superpowers on both sides of the English Channel, the United Kingdom and France, each started hatching their own plans, each with astronomical projected costs. Engineers in the two countries started creating similar plans, and the two countries ended up deciding to cooperate rather than compete with each other in this global race. The matter became a political and diplomatic one between the two historical adversaries. Rather than a commercial business agreement between companies, the project ended up being held together by an international treaty between the two governments. Given the significant investment required by both sides, the treaty included heavy penalties for cancellation, requiring the side that pulled out of the treaty to fund the rest of the project until the plane was fully developed. Once the treaty was signed on November 29, 1962, the funding started flowing. The agreement was that two prototypes would be built, one in Filton near Bristol in England and one in Toulouse, France. English and French engineers began working on the massive project together, often making regular trips across the English Channel and having to learn each other's languages. This also meant that there were two sets of management, two versions had to be made for each aircraft part, and there were two groups of engineers. Not only did this add to the complexity of the project, but it also started to drive up the cost. Now, Concorde itself was an engineering marvel. The overall shape and wing design was like that of no other aircraft seen before. The engines were taken from a military jet, but redesigned from the ground up to be more powerful. In 1967, the Toulouse prototype, numbered 001, was unveiled to much publicity in France. Around two years later, on March 2nd, 1969, 001 made its first test flight. A month later, on April 9th, Concorde 002, the British prototype, made its first flight. 
Concorde then went supersonic for the first time that October. By this time, there were over 50 orders for Concorde from a global slate of airlines. In the United States, there was Pan Am, TWA, United, Eastern Airlines, among others. Elsewhere in the world, there was Japan Airlines, Air India, Qantas, and more. And of course, there was Air France and the British Overseas Airways Corporation, one of the predecessors of British Airways. At this point, I want to talk a little bit about efforts in other parts of the world to build a supersonic airliner. In 1963, US President John F. Kennedy declared that the US would build a commercially successful supersonic transport plane in a speech delivered at the US Air Force Academy. As a result, the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, issued a request for proposals and three aerospace giants responded, Boeing, Lockheed, and North American, which today is a part of Boeing. Boeing eventually had the winning design and started the project known as the Boeing 7207, but the journey to putting an American supersonic transport aircraft in the sky faced many, many challenges. The US government was already pouring tons of money into the race to put a man on the moon, and after successfully doing so in 1969, there was much less of an appetite for expensive aerospace projects. Although President Richard Nixon's administration was still committed to the idea of an American-built supersonic airliner, Congress was less keen and cancelled funding for the supersonic transfer program by May of 1971. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union was developing the Tupolev Tu-144, nicknamed Konkordsky. The aircraft looked quite similar to Concorde, and it's widely suspected that there was some industrial espionage going on in both directions. However, the aircraft was indeed its own plane, and it was larger, faster, and more powerful than Concorde. Although it ended up being the first supersonic transport aircraft to break the speed of sound, beating out Concorde, it was a rushed project with many corners cut. There was no baggage hold under the cabin, lavatories wouldn't work sometimes, and window shades would fall down by themselves. The noise in the cabin was also incredibly loud, with passengers resorting to passing notes to communicate because they just couldn't hear each other. The reason for this is because that unlike Concorde, the TU-144 couldn't turn off its afterburners after takeoff. During the 1973 Paris Air Show, the TU-144 was on approach during a demonstration flight when it accelerated and climbed back upwards. As it was climbing, the engines lost power and the plane began plummeting towards the ground, breaking apart before crashing into the ground. All six people on board and another eight people on the ground were tragically killed. Despite the problems in the crash, the TU-144 program continued on. However, it only flew a little over 100 commercial flights, and that includes cargo flights, and only around 50 flights with passengers on board. The program was officially cancelled in July of 1983, but the TU-144 continued to be used for research after that, even by NASA. Now, the TU-144 is often remembered as a failure that is largely overshadowed by Concorde, but it actually was the one to fly supersonic first. The TU-144 went supersonic on June 5, 1969, four months before Concorde did, and a year later, it became the first commercial transport to exceed Mach 2. Let's go back to the Concorde story now. Concorde first flew and went supersonic in 1969 and had over 50 orders. However, by 1972, the cost had soared to over a billion pounds, and Concorde still had a long way to go before it could enter service. The prototypes were therefore sent on a global sales tour in an effort to drum up more orders. Unfortunately, the tour actually kind of did the opposite, and Concorde began to lose customers. 
The prototypes generated an ugly trail of black smoke from its engines. There were concerns about the noise created by the plane, and then there was a sonic boom. Now, aircraft traveling faster than the speed of sound don't just create a sonic boom once when they break the sound barrier, but they actually emit sonic boom continuously as they fly at supersonic speeds. These thunder-like banging sounds were extremely disturbing to those on the ground and could smash loose windows over inhabited areas. Complaints started pouring in during testing, and the sonic boom problem made it very difficult to operate the plane at supersonic speeds over land. On top of that, a stock market crash and oil crisis in 1973 led to airlines favoring other new aircraft at the time that were much more fuel efficient than Concorde. As you'll recall, 1973 was also the year of the disastrous TU-144 crash at the Paris Air Show. By the end of that year, almost all of Concorde's orders had been cancelled. Management at British Airways and Air France from the two countries that were working on the plane weren't even interested in the plane anymore as well. The British government basically ended up gifting aircraft to British Airways under a profit-sharing agreement. Concorde finally entered service when scheduled flights began on July 21, 1976 by Air France and British Airways. The two airlines used Concorde on various routes throughout its service history, most famously on flights between New York's JFK Airport and London Heathrow Airport and Paris-Charles de Gaulle Airport. While British Airways and Air France are very well known for operating the Concorde, U.S. airline Braniff International Airways actually operated 11 Concords from 1978 to 1980. Braniff leased these planes from Air France and British Airways under a partnership that saw the planes registered both in the U.S. and in their home countries in Europe. Braniff flight crew and cabin crew operated the Concords from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport in Texas to Washington-Dulles International Airport, where British Airways and Air France crews would then take over the planes as they continued on to Europe. While the transatlantic portions of the flights were supersonic, the flights between Dallas and Washington were operated at subsonic speeds. Due to a lack of profitability though, this arrangement ended in May of 1980, less than two years after the flights started. On July 25th, 2000, tragedy struck. At Paris-Charles-de-Gaulle Airport, an Air France Concorde operating a charter flight started taking off while loaded over the maximum takeoff weight. While rolling down the runway, the plane struck a piece of metal on the ground at 180 miles per hour, breaking a tire and causing pieces of debris to fly upward and hit the bottom of the wing, causing a fuel tank to rupture. A hundred liters of fuel started pouring out of the engine each second, creating a massive fiery trail behind the plane as it started to climb. The plane never reached sufficient speed to climb and it crashed into a hotel on the ground, killing all 109 people on board and four others on the ground. All Concorde aircraft were then grounded in order to make expensive repairs as a result. Now, the plane re-entered service in November of 2001, but the world of air travel was now different. The technology used on Concorde was starting to become outdated, and demand for air travel had plummeted since the September 11 attacks. On April 10, 2003, Air France and British Airways simultaneously announced the retirement of Concorde. Concorde flew its last passenger flights later that year. Until this day, there has not been another supersonic passenger aircraft to enter service. As I mentioned at the start of this segment, jet airliners today fly at speeds of around Mach 0.76 to Mach 0.85, and for many years, there wasn't a serious effort to develop a new supersonic transport aircraft either. 
There are tons of challenges associated with supersonic passenger planes, and I want to cover some of these now. From an engineering standpoint, building a supersonic aircraft poses a bunch of challenges compared to building the subsonic airliners that we fly on today. Engine design varies greatly between supersonic and subsonic aircraft. The materials used for the plane have to be able to withstand the high temperatures associated with supersonic flight. The fuselage, or the body of the plane, has to be structurally stronger than that of subsonic aircraft because supersonic planes fly at higher altitudes and have different pressurization requirements. You'll also notice that all historical and proposed designs for supersonic aircraft look quite different from subsonic aircraft that we fly on today. Because supersonic aircraft generally require a narrower design, engineers can't really just work off the basic structure of the subsonic planes that we have when they're trying to design a supersonic one. I talked about sonic boom when telling the Concorde story, but it really does put a lot of limitations on the use of supersonic aircraft. Sonic boom isn't just a problem because of the noise, but also because it can cause physical damage on the ground. Concorde had to wait until it was at high altitudes over water before going supersonic, which limited its use as it could not hit supersonic speeds when flying over land. Any future supersonic transport plane would have to do the same or have to have significant design changes. Concorde was much less fuel efficient compared to other passenger planes, and estimates for future supersonic transport aircraft also showed that they'll likely burn a lot of fuel. For example, the Boeing 747-400 could carry more than three times the number of passengers across the Atlantic as Concorde could, while using the same amount of fuel. Now given the fuel burn of supersonic aircraft, there have always been environmental concerns surrounding their use. Future supersonic planes would likely have a higher fuel burn per passenger than their subsonic counterparts, so these environmental concerns are likely going to continue to exist going forward. The noise, the sonic boom problem, the fuel inefficiency, and the environmental concerns all make the idea of a supersonic aircraft not all that appealing to airlines. Of course, it would be very flashy to have a supersonic passenger plane, but airlines have a lot to consider. The issue with sonic boom means that there are limited routes that the plane could operate on, and higher fuel costs will lead to more expensive tickets. There's also the question of whether there's actually an appetite for supersonic flight from passengers. The Concorde was a luxury experience, with planes filled with wealthy business travelers and celebrities, as well as those who had saved up for the trip of a lifetime. Champagne flowed, and passengers were served gourmet meals. At the end of the day, however, the cabin was quite cramped and the seats were economy class seats with just a bit more legroom. Even at the time, luxuries found in international business class like video entertainment or seats with generous recline were nowhere to be found on Concorde. Today, those who could have afforded to fly on Concorde can enjoy new luxuries in business class where we now have things like suites and lie flat seats. In the transatlantic market where Concorde was most successful, most of the flights from North America to Europe are overnight. Passengers might be more content flying 7 hours and getting some sleep rather than paying more just to save a few hours in a supersonic plane. Since Concorde, there have been a number of different projects undertaken to build a new supersonic transport aircraft with varying degrees of success. An American company called Aeron started developing a supersonic business jet in 2004. The company had a lot of experienced industry executives, they partnered with Boeing and General Electric, but eventually went out of business in May of 2021 after not being able to raise enough capital to continue with the project. 
perhaps the most promising project currently underway is the Boom Overture. US company Boom Supersonic is developing a supersonic passenger aircraft with a capacity of 65 to 80 passengers. Boom has said that it sees the potential to sell one or two thousand of these planes and that it's designing the aircraft to be able to offer round-trip tickets between New York and London for only 5,000 US dollars. For comparison, adjusted for inflation, Concorde round-trip tickets on this route would cost around 20,000 US dollars today. The company has said that the plane will cruise at Mach 1.7 at 60,000 feet and also claims that there are over 600 profitable routes for the Boom Overture. As of September 2022, it has over 200 orders from Virgin Group, Japan Airlines, United, American, and a number of unspecified customers. Although Boom Supersonic has some impressive partners and customers, the aircraft is far from a done deal. Aeron's proposed business jet also had industry partners and customers, but it still didn't come to fruition. The airlines have likely paid small deposits and see it as an investment in a potentially successful product that comes with an opportunity for a flashy announcement. Boom had partnered with Rolls-Royce for the engine design for the Boom Overture. In early September of 2002, however, Rolls-Royce backed out of the project reportedly because supersonic flight was no longer a priority and the company would therefore not be pursuing the market any further. Obviously, this is a setback for Boom as it will now have to look for a new engine partner. Nevertheless, as of mid-September 2002, the Boom Supersonic website states that test flights are slated to begin in 2026 with passenger flights starting in 2029. There are some other concepts out there as well. Japan's National Air and Space Agency is developing a supersonic transport aircraft called the Next Generation Supersonic Transport. In May 2018, Boeing unveiled the concept for a hypersonic passenger plane that could reach speeds of Mach 6 with the term hypersonic referring to speeds of Mach 5 and above. Now, given the very early stages of these projects and the long road ahead for the Boom Overture, the future of supersonic flight is still very much up in the air. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. As I mentioned earlier, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to leave us a 5-star review if you're listening somewhere that allows you to do so like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as it would really help the podcast out. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Music